At Boar's Head, delicious is in the details, and you see that in their incredible selection of hummus flavors. Boar's Head hummus is expertly crafted to achieve the perfect balance of creamy texture and refined taste. You can taste those chickpeas, you can taste the tahini, you can taste a little bit of acidity. It's got it all. I especially love their roasted red pepper hummus made with fire-roasted peppers. You can even taste a little bit of that char. It's perfectly dippable. It's perfectly spreadable. This is the kind of thing you always want to have on hand in your refrigerator. Dip, scoop, spread, or smear boar's head hummus to your heart's content. Hummus so extraordinary, it can only be boar's head. Compromise elsewhere. This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. And we are coming to you live from the Bell House in Brooklyn, New York. For decades in America, if you wanted to cook most kinds of Asian, African, or Latin American food at home, you basically had two options. You could get all the ingredients and make it from scratch. But whether or not you grew up with these foods, you might not know how to make them yourself, and you might not have time to cook at all. Your other option? Choose from a limited number of prepackaged meals, sauces, or spice packs. These grocery store standbys of the ethnic or international aisle would often be very sweet and lacking in spice and depth of flavor. Today, a new generation of American entrepreneurs is attempting to change that. You want the flavors of Somalia with a modern twist? There's Hawa Hassan's Best Best Foods, which offers jars of tamarind date sauce and coconut cilantro chutney. You want to serve Chinese hot pot, but you've only got 10 minutes until your friends arrive? Open up a packet of Fly by Jing Hot Pot Base, add whatever you have in the fridge, and enjoy the unmistakable taste of Sichuan peppercorns. These are exciting and delicious times. But the road to long-term success for all these brands is still full of challenges. What has to happen for Vietnamese lemongrass barbecue sauce to take up as much space on the shelf as Texas barbecue sauce? For Indian tomato achar to sit alongside Italian tomato sauce? We're going to discuss these questions and more with the founders of two companies who make achar, Vietnamese barbecue sauce, and much more. Chitra Agarwal is a food writer, cookbook author, and founder of the Indian sauce and condiment company Brooklyn Deli. Please welcome Chitra Agarwal. Hey, Chitra. Hello. And Vanessa Pham is the co-founder and CEO of the Asian pantry staple brand Amsam, which she launched with her sister Kim in 2020. Please welcome Vanessa Pham. So excited to be here. So let's take a minute. I just want to set up each of your respective backstories a little bit so that we can get to the present and the future. Chitra, you first. Both your parents were born in India. They came to the U.S. for college and stayed. You grew up in New Jersey, watching your mother cook Indian food and visiting India, watching your grandmother cook a lot of the same dishes. What are some of the dishes you remember? Since my parents grew up in two different parts of India, we ate North Indian and South Indian cooking. So we would have, you know, some chapati with sag paneer maybe, but then we would have um, South Indian like rasam with chitrana, which is a rice dish. So it would be like a combo of these two different cuisines from both regions. In your bio, you write about the ABCD label, American-born, confused, Desi. Desi being a term for a person of South Asian descent. Right. 
who no longer lives in South Asia. Um, and you talk about how you struggled with that label growing up. What was the struggle? A lot of times it's a derogatory term. So it's kind of like, oh, you're acting like such an AVCD. So I wanted to show that there was value in this perspective. Um, and uh, the way that I did it was through creating these recipes that were very much uh, reflective of that identity. After college, you get an MBA, work in advertising, start doing marketing for American Express. But in your spare time throughout your 20s, it sounds like you are spending a lot of time cooking. Yes, definitely. I think I started to want to document my family's recipes because I think over the years, I would just have recipes that were sitting in an email or written down in a notebook. So then in 2009, you're 30 years old and you start a food blog on the side as a hobby. You call it the ABCDs of cooking, ABCD, American Board, Confused Daisy. And that leads you to hosting supper clubs and dinners. Eventually you get a cookbook deal that allows you to leave your day job. I actually at one point wanted to start kind of a South Asian cultural center. And it was kind of going to be a place where people could come and take cooking classes. They could um, host pop-up dinners. I could sell South Asian um, foods and things like that. And it was funny because it was the Power Up competition that the Brooklyn Library puts on. And I was like, oh, I want to enter that competition. And if I get get that money, then I can kind of start this center. And so my husband is like, I think we should do something together. And he is a food packaging designer. And he was like, you know, those are chars that you make that everybody loves at your dinners. He's like, I would design the packaging, you develop the recipes, and let's just do this. And so we did the whole business plan. We, we did it all. Um, and we ended up losing. And, um, and yes, it's anticlimactic. I'm sorry. It was, <laughs> but, um, but then we were like, well, we have this business plan. Right. Might as, and might as well we designed the packaging. Right. So let's go for it. Right, right. <laughs> so, Vanessa, your parents were both refugees from Vietnam. Your dad tried to escape Vietnam seven times before finally getting out. That's right. They came separately in the early 80s. Both ended up in Boston, where they met. Your mother worked as a waitress. Father worked as a busboy. Eventually, they moved out to the Boston suburbs, Pembroke, Mass, on the South Shore, for those keeping the score. Uh, and that's where you grew up. When you were a kid, I gather that, that to some degree you were kind of embarrassed of your culture, embarrassed of your parents' accents. Absolutely. I mean, as a kid, in the sharpest way possible, I felt that shame. I'd be embarrassed to have folks over. My house would smell like Boon Ba Hoi, which is like lemongrass and like spicy. And my parents would blast Vietnamese music and like open the screen doors. And I would just be horrified. Um, and yeah, no, so that was a huge part of, and I remember I brought like pork floss to school for lunch and the kids, they didn't like that one. <laughs> When you were young and gather, there, there was a story that your father shared about his experience in Boston before you were born, but it was something that sort of he shared with you early on. Yeah, totally. So my my parents raised me through stories. They, When my dad came to the U.S., he didn't want to raise Kim, who's my sister and my co-founder, from a place of, of discipline, but rather through stories. And uh, he has many stories. One of them that he told me really early on was how he came to join the um, Boston Police Department. And how that happened was he lived in Dorchester, which is like an ethnic enclave, to use a sociological term, um, in Boston, where, you know, the 
Irish Catholic folks live and a lot of Black Americans live. And then the Vietnamese community came and started to reside there as well. And walking down the street, you know, something he would hear often was to go back to your country. And somebody said that to him and like spit on him and like pushed him. And so when the police department came, he ended up kind of like advocating for himself, explaining what happened. And they were like, your English is so good. He had been studying for so long. And so on behalf of his Vietnamese American community in Dorchester, he decided to go work as an interpreter for the Boston Police Department, like as a nighttime job after his normal nine to five. Um, And so that was like the seed in my mind of like, oh, what would it be like to be like an advocate for your community? It really shaped me. You said that ever since you and your sister Kim were young, you were always scrappy. <laughs> yes. Is there a, a story you can share, an example of your scrappiness? Oh, my gosh. I, well, perhaps the best example. I was a young entrepreneur. I found ways to create margin where there should have been none. <laughs> I, my, I think my story here is... I've never told this anywhere. When I, at one family party, I took out my, I don't eat chocolate. I love everything. I'm not a picky eater. I just don't like chocolate. And I took out all my eight month old chocolate bars from Halloween. I shaped them into a cake because I didn't know how cakes were baked. And I formed them. I microwaved it till it melted into a cake. And I served the slices for cash at a family party. And that is COGS 101. I think that's how that works. How much did you charge per slice? I don't remember. Did they I don't sell? Think my pricing, they, they sold out of pity. <laughs> I, I remember that was like one of the first times I started to like really understand what pity looked like in people's eyes. <laughs> so after college, you go to work at Bain and Company doing management consulting. You're working with Fortune 500 CPG companies. In 2018... You're 24 years old, and you and your sister Kim go on a trip together to Bolivia. Now, set the scene for me. The backstory here is she was risk-loving. And so, okay, when we were in high school, I was like the straight-A student, and she didn't care as much. She was also, she was very, you know, she got A's and B's. But, um, B's? But by, the, <laughs> but by the time we were adults in the world, I was watching her risk just get rewarded. And I was like, but like I'm the straight A student. Like I wanna, I wanna do something really like risky. And and so that was kind of the seed in my head. And so I kind of came to her and I was like on this hike and I was like, so like, you know, I know you would be down to start a company on your own, but like, what if we started a company? And she turned to me and she was dead serious. She was like, I've been waiting for this day. <laughs> and that was that. And we started saving money like crazy and and then started. I'm so I'm like six months later, or at least quit our jobs to start working on it more. Chitra, you launched Brooklyn Deli, D-E-L-H-I, for folks listening at home. And um, you start off with your achars. Yeah. So achar, which also is called pickles or like an Indian pickle. Even if you go into some South Asian markets in the U.S., it will be called Indian pickle on the jar. But you made the choice to call it achar. Yes. Why? 
because I didn't know research. And <laughs> I, no, we, I, I wanted to, I mean, I came from it actually from a cooking teacher perspective. I wanted to teach people the name of it. And so that's why we, we launched with the char. Um, and the other piece was that in, um, you know, a lot of supermarkets, you, you'll find dill pickles. And I didn't want it to get confused with it because it's used in such a different way. It's like a spicy condiment versus a pickle. right. right. You launch your tomato achar with Brooklyn Deli. Your husband designs the label. And for the first four years, you operate Brooklyn Deli out of a soup pantry in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. When you first launch, you get a lot of press attention because achar was totally new to a lot of people. So a lot of like, food press was really excited about this new thing. All that press leads to calls from buyers who want your achar in their stores. But when you get it in the stores, it doesn't sell. Why not? I think that in a grocery store, people a lot of times are on autopilot. And I think this for myself as well, it's that I kind of know what I buy and what I want. And I'm a little bit in tunnel vision in a sense. So when you put a product like a char that there's no other chars on the shelf, um, it, it may just sit there because there, people don't know what it is. So you start doing demos in some of the stores. You think, all right, I'll show people. Like at the farmer's market, I'll set up a stand. But it sounds like that also was not an easy path. No, it's not. It wasn't an easy path. I mean, it, it helped us to educate more people, but we couldn't reach a large quantity of people that way. It was a really hard time because at one point, I mean, I just remember I was just about to have my first kid and... Uh, we were maybe three years in, and we didn't know if it was going to survive, basically. And the I think, business. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> the business. <laughs> yes. Um, children are doing fine, for the record. Yeah. Children, healthy, it's all children good. were coming, right, yeah. not born yet. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, so it, it was a tough time, and I think that... Um, one thing we realized is that we need more people to sample the product because as soon as I sampled it or demoed it, it would sell. So it would sell off the shelf, but I needed to be there. And so and this you, was you can a only way. be in so many places. Right. But, but also, I, I would imagine even if you get people to taste it, just demoing, it also involves a lot of rejection. You're, it's not like yeah. you're just like at Costco <laughs> getting paid $15 an hour to demo the thing that's on special that week, like this is your life's work. Yeah, I know. That you're offering to people who walk by who are just trying to get their errands done. And they do like, not want to talk to you. <laughs> they don't want to talk to you. It's just, it's hard. It's like you have to develop a thick skin. I mean, when you're sitting there, you know, I mean, the demos would be for four hours just trying to get people to try your product. And people are like, no, I'm okay, I'm okay. And I'm like, are you sure? Um, <laughs> really? Uh, but, um, but yeah, you got to kind of like stick with it and keep going. In 2016, you're a couple years in with Brooklyn Deli. You're getting ready to go to, to a trade show, the fancy food show in California. And right before you go, your husband, Ben, has an idea, right? He, he's a designer, as we said, so he designed some concept cards, like brochures of products that you are going to show people that you have in the pipeline. Well, I wouldn't say brochure. I'd say that it was a drawing and then... Okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, sketch right. uh, uh, of things that, that you... Uh, ideas that don't exist. Yes. So, you, so you, you get to the food show and you end up talking with a buyer from Whole Foods. So this is a big deal. And she's interested. 
Right. She really likes the achars. We had several different sketches that we showed her, and one of them was this concept of a curry ketchup, which basically kind of mixed the flavor profile of the tomato achar with ketchup. We loved it, and so she was like, that sounds interesting. I'd like to try it. And we were like, okay. And we were in California at the time, and it was like, I don't have this product. But she was like, can you sh- can you send it to me? I'm going back to Austin, just like you know, overnight it to us. And we were like, oh my god. So we we like literally <laughs> went back to this Airbnb we were staying in. We made ketchup, we mixed it with the tomato achar, like sent it to her, and then we got a phone call from her, and she was like, I love it. Everybody loves it here. We're gonna. We want to take it national. And she was like, "Can you also develop a curry mustard for me?" And I was like, <laughs> "Yeah." <laughs> but that basically, I mean, that was one of the things that saved us. So you get the curry ketchup and curry mustard into Whole Foods. They become sort of the tip of the spear for you today, Chitra. Your Brooklyn Deli product line includes the tomato achar a roasted garlic achar, your curry ketchup and mustard, um, and then now a line of simmer sauces, including coconut curry and cashew butter masala. You're in Whole Foods nationwide, Amazon, a range of specialty stores. Your products are often featured in Blue Apron, and people can order direct from your website. Yes. How many units of total Brooklyn Deli products do you expect to sell this year? Um, <laughs> well, I mean, last year we sold over a million units. So, I mean, so, yeah. Amazing. Congratulations. Coming up, Chitra, Vanessa, and I talk about the pros and cons of having your product in the international aisle at the grocery store. And we look at why it's a problem when non-European cuisines are labeled as authentic. Stick around. Time to cook up some advertisements. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, a business tripper, or a long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. They've got over 7,000 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels, and you will get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. I especially love those Cambria Hotels. They have locally inspired hotel bars with all kinds of specialty cocktails, downtown locations right in the center of all the action. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces. That way, if you're a business traveler, you'll be able to get all your work done. On-site restaurants, fantastic. And then at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles and great pools for the whole family and spacious rooms. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the importance of the pool. If you stay at a hotel with a pool, Almost nothing else matters. Fortunately, all the choice hotels take care of all the other stuff too, but I mean, a pool is a great start. Whatever kind of vacation you're going on, whatever kind of travel you're doing, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. The weather's warming up. Have you nailed down your summer travel plans yet? I can tell you, we're working on ours and things are booking up, which is why you should be thinking about Norwegian Cruise Line. They have been raising the standards of cruising for more than 55 years. Let me tell you, when you cruise with NCL, you get award-winning specialty restaurants, immersive entertainment, and the most thrilling experiences at sea. Now, look, one of the great things about cruises in general is that you can visit and explore all kinds of different destinations, all with the ease of unpacking your bag just once. But Norwegian Cruise Line 
They take cruising to another level and they take food to another level. With no set dining and entertainment times and no formal dress codes, you have the flexibility to design your ideal vacation. They have an incredible variety of truly authentic and fresh dining and bar experiences complemented by exceptional service. Listen to this. There are up to eight complimentary and nine specialty dining options per ship and up to 23 bar and lounge options. Come see why NCL's guest first philosophy means exceptional service and unforgettable memories. Book your next vacation at ncl.com. A few years back, my friend Justin Warner from Food Network moved out to South Dakota. He opened a ramen joint, and he is always posting pictures of all the great food he's not only cooking, but eating all over South Dakota. He's always telling me to come visit. And you know, one of the best ways to experience a new place is to eat your way through it. But it's equally important to live your way through it, too. And when you summer in South Dakota, you can fill up on all the lake days, hikes, rides, and small-town strolls that'll leave you with a regained sense of wonder and a hunger to do it all over again. See why there's so much South Dakota, so little time at Travel South Dakota. I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know the peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's sticks? Their wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate. I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy. And the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. On last week's episode, I head to L.A. and attempt to find a specific coconut cake that I should have eaten years ago when I had the chance. It's almost like I'm going to try to go back in time to right or wrong. So I start... Where else? At the Echo Park Time Travel Mart. And things only get weirder from there. I end up in some underground tunnels that used to connect a network of illegal bars during Prohibition. I'm in. I'm in the tunnel. You could get seriously lost in here. It just keeps going. There's some people coming along this way that look like they're law enforcement, so I'm going to turn around and walk back the other way. Oh my God, you guys, the coolest thing just happened. This episode is a little out there, okay? It's a little different from our normal offerings, but I really love it, and I think you will too. So if you want to find out what that coolest thing that just happened was, or whether I ever actually get the coconut cake, listen to last week's show. And while you're scrolling through our feed, please subscribe to our show or like or favorite or follow whatever it is in your podcasting app. Go ahead, you can do it right now while you're listening. You hit subscribe or the plus sign or the heart sign, whatever it is, please do that thing. Then we can hang out in the future. Thanks. Okay, back to our live show with Chitra Agarwal of Brooklyn Deli and Vanessa Pham of Amsam. Vanessa, let's pick up your story. So you and Kim have your idea. You decide you're going to call the business Amsam. What's Amsam? Yeah, so Amsam is actually a Vietnamese word, Amsam. And in in Vietnamese, it means like noisy, rowdy, rambunctious. It's actually a negative term. It's what my parents would use when they were scolding us. Like we were causing a ruckus in the back of the car and they'd be like, oh my God, you're being so omsome. Like, and, and so we were like, wait, that's kind of exactly what we want to lean into. Like, especially with this model minority myth of saying, you know, Asians are docile or submissive or quiet. We were like, that's not who we are. And when we look around at our community, we see 
all different types of personalities. And so we were like, let's reclaim that word and let's kind of give our own middle finger to the model minority myth and launch Omsom. And so that's what it's all about. It's about being proud and loud. And you'll see that in everything that we put out into the world, like our really bright, vibrant colors or um, a lot of the visuals with our branding are designed around like heat waves and flame and um, noisiness, so like uh, sound forms and things like that. You'll see that when you start to look at our website or our packaging. And we we try to just like live that in everything that we do. You know, I, I referenced at the top of the show, the sort of old guard of international ethnic aisle Asian products. Um, you were very explicit, like no dragons, none of that stereotypical font. Right, no bamboo fonts, no right. pagodas. We're done with the pandas. Like, let's give it a rest. Like, that's <laughs> that's what we we yes. <laughs> right. So you developed this set. The initial set is Southeast Asian starters, meal starters. Yes. Um, they come in a little packet, and um, you start off with Vietnamese lemongrass barbecue, larb, and Filipino sisig, among others. And then and you start working with well-known chefs who have roots in these cuisines to develop the recipes. And so you're trying to get this company off the ground. You have a concept now. You decide that you need investors. Why? Yeah, so decide is a generous term. It was, <laughs> it was I was 24 and I was living off of my savings in New York City. And I was... Which, uh, for, let the record reflect that Vanessa did air quotes when she said savings. <laughs> the, the audio record will show. And I mean, I was, I was getting by by basically doing interview coaching and resume editing off of Craigslist. That's how I was paying my rent. And eventually that doesn't get you so far in New York with New York rent. So that's when I literally came to Kim. I was like, we need to raise money because I can't go on like this. I can't pay my rent. So, so that's why we, yeah, we raised our kind of pre-seed, if you will. What were those pitch meetings like? Just disastrous. I mean, <laughs> we, the erasing this was the most, like one of the most character building things I've ever done. It was a masterclass in rejection. Truly, some people laughed. They're like, why are you talking to me about this? They were like, yeah, we've heard of Blue Apron, but like, what? You want to, you, a sauce company? Um, and so, yeah, met like lots of no's for many, many months. Chitra, you decided not to take investment in your company. Why did you make that decision? I think that, I mean, taking investment is such a personal decision. Um, and I, I worked, um, you know, in corporate America for over 10 years. And I just knew that I wanted my autonomy. And maybe I'm a control freak. I wanted to be able to control the recipes that I developed what ingredients go into those recipes, the marketing. Investors are looking for a return, and uh, they're also looking to protect their interests. And sometimes those interests may not align with a founder's interests. And I just wanted to not answer to anybody else, basically. Um, but, I mean, it was it was tough. I mean, for the first four years, we... I couldn't pay myself, and I was working um, a part-time job in marketing. I was writing the cookbook, so I used my advance. Um, I don't come from wealth. I didn't buy clothes for four years. I ate a lot of beans. Like, <laughs> that's the truth of it, you know? And we came out on the other side. We became profitable. I could pay myself after four years. Um, it took time, and that's the one thing. It, it, it just takes more time. 
Um, but at the end of the day, I'm doing what I love. Vanessa, were any of those things concerns for you and Kim when you decided to take investment? Absolutely. Oh my gosh. It is. I would totally echo all the things that you said. And it is, it's really challenging. I think there's several things that we've done to be really intentional around the investors that we've brought on. So one piece is that really being thoughtful about who you're bringing in and do they deeply understand why you're building what you're building. Like at the end of the day, like they need to make money and that's the reality of it. But there, there's increasingly more like mission-driven investors and folks that care about where their money goes and what it's creating and the change that it's making in the world. And so we're definitely really thoughtful about the folks that we partner with in that regard. And I wrote an investor manifesto after we raised our bigger round and I sent it the day after we closed it to everybody. And essentially the gist of it was like, this takes a village. Like we need everybody here to help us. And we are going to soak everything up like a sponge and then decide what is best for the business. And that was the tone that I wanted to set. And many investors responded like, oh, that was pretty ballsy. But most of them were like really on board and respected that. And I think that's kind of the work that I do as CEO. So in 2020, in the height of COVID lockdown in many places in the U.S., you are ready to launch AmSam. Some of your advisors tell you to wait out the pandemic, uh, let the dust settle, but you, you're right. (laughs) But you move forward, figuring rightly, people are cooking more and they don't want to go to the store. And your launch strategy anyway is we're going to just ship online first. We're not going to get in stores right away. So you launch with your Southeast Asian starters, the Thai Lar, Vietnamese lemongrass barbecue, and Filipino sisig. You soon add the East Asian varieties with Korean spicy bulgogi, Japanese yuzu misoyaki, and Chinese mala salad. Things take off. What I could tell, certainly, you do cross promotions with everyone from Instant Pot to Spam to Pepper Tegan. (laughs) And now, as of this summer, you are launching nationwide in Whole Foods. About how many meal starters do you expect to sell this year? Uh, this year, probably about a million. Congratulations. We've caught up. We're, at, we're in the present now. Let's talk about where we're at and where we're going and some of the challenges ahead. One of the issues that I know is something you both thought a lot about, but I don't think that it crosses the mind of the average consumer is where in the store is your product going to be placed? Now, look, if you make pasta, that's an easy one. It goes in the pasta section. Um, But when you're making a product that is new and different in some way, there isn't necessarily a good section for it. First of all, why does it matter? Like, Vanessa, why does it matter where in the store your food item gets placed? I think the biggest reason is because The measure of success that you're looking for in a grocery store is velocity, which means how quickly are they moving off the shelf, which is correlated to some degree to foot traffic. So how many people are walking down that that aisle? And then what is the mindset that consumers are in when they're in that section of the store as well? Um, You know, what are their like kind of internal biases when they're in that part of the store? Trisha, you talk about how it's been a struggle to educate people on what you can do with a char, the things that they're going to think they might be able to do with it will be influenced 
by what else they see around it on the shelf. Yes and no. I feel like consumers are just trained right now to go to, you know, in in Whole Foods, it's called the global flavors aisle. We worked with the buyer. For instance, when we launched the curry ketchup and the curry mustard, we had discussions. Where should that product go? And it ended up in the condiments aisle because we were like, people, when they're looking for ketchup, when they're looking for mustard, um, this makes sense. But what we found is that when we actually have those products next to our other products in the international aisle, they actually sell more because we have more facings and we have more of our product there. So it's also a whole row of Brooklyn Deli products. So that catches the eye. Right. So it's like a psychological or consumer behavior type of thing. I haven't seen ethnic aisle as much lately. Hopefully that's going away, although I'm sure it's still in some places. I hope so. It's still out there. Um, it's still yeah. out there. More often I see international aisle or, or what is it, global flavors? Is that what they call it, a Whole Foods? Okay, so. Um, <laughs> I mean, let's just get right to the heart of the matter. Like, what's the problem with the international aisle? It's segregation in the grocery store, basically. So it's saying that um, these products are other. Yeah, so I went to my local supermarket recently. I wanted to get Coleman's English mustard, which I love. And I went to the condiments section, and I saw, you know, by the Heinz ketchup and the French's mustard, no Coleman's. But I did, in addition to the French's mustard, I saw a German-style mustard, a Polish-style mustard. But I looked at the, at the jars, and I saw that they were all made in America. And I thought, oh, maybe the Coleman's is in the international section because it's made in England. So I walk around the corner to the international aisle, and I still find no Coleman's, but I do find one kind of mustard in the international aisle, Chinese mustard. And guess where it's made? New Jersey. <laughs> So what's the difference? All these mustards are made in America, and yet the German mustard is next to the Heinz ketchup, and the Chinese mustard is international. In other words, not American. That's really the root of the issue, right? But it is the kind of thing that I think a lot of average consumers wouldn't even notice, but it sends a really important signal about which people have transcended the border from being foreign to being American, and which people have not, regardless of how long they've been here. So if you could snap your fingers, and the international aisle would disappear tomorrow, and your product would just be categorized in wherever, you know, the tomato achar would be next to the tomato sauce, the pizza sauce, so people know to put it on pizzas. Maybe it would go in a couple different places, but there's no international aisle. I'll ask you each, if you could make that change tomorrow, would you? I would. I would. And I mean, I don't necessarily know that it would be better for my business in the short term, but that's not really why I do what I do. Like I really am building Omsom because of this, this broader mission that really speaks to me. And I do think it makes sense for like rice noodles to be near pasta. And like, there's a cooking sauce section. Our products are cooking sauces, right? So I I think there's a way that it actually just makes sense. It's by function. I think that that's like shouldn't be that hard. uh, Despite knowing how conditioned consumers are (laughs) to look for your products in global flavors, would you eliminate that aisle if you could? 
I would, but I think that I would think of it more in a modular sense. So it's like how people cook. I would reconfigure the store so it's, if you're in the produce aisle or if you're in the meat counter, that you would put these sauces or these flavorings there rather than even be in those aisles. It, it just doesn't make sense to me. So, Vanessa, you don't use the word authentic to describe your products. Why not? For us, we don't use the word authentic to describe our products because we feel like that is a very limiting word that often pulls on ideas of like nostalgia or the way that our families did it. And moreover, it is more often used for cuisines that are not European, right? Like this idea of like authentic hole-in-the-wall Asian food. It's got to be cheap. Then therefore, those chefs and those creators can't command a premium for their hard work and their talents. And so I think we're just trying to say like, Let's be flexible and let's be thoughtful about all the ways that innovation and creativity can continue to kind of persist in food. And let's not like hold them to this impossible standard of it's got to taste like my mom or my dad made it. Chitra, what are your thoughts on the idea of authenticity? My identity is so tied up with what Brooklyn Deli is. Um, So I like to say that these products are very much authentic to me. This whole brand of Brooklyn Deli kind of started because I started to explore my identity through food. You know, there's ways that my family makes um, rasam or sambar, and I was trying to find this quintessential recipe. And in my own family, everybody did it differently. And I think for for me, that actually was extremely freeing. A lot of the recipes, they definitely had this foundation of um, these techniques, but um, they were really according to my own taste, um, just as a lot of my relatives made their their food according to their taste. And, um, and it freed me up to create what I wanted at Brooklyn Deli. Chitra Agarwal is the founder of Brooklyn Deli. You can get her products at Whole Foods, on Amazon, and directly from her at brooklyndeli.com. That's D-E-L-H-I dot com. Big hand for Chitra. And Vanessa Pham is the co-founder of Omsom. Her products are also coming now to Whole Foods, and you can order them directly from her at omsom.com. Big hand for Vanessa. And a big hand for all of you. Thank you so much for coming out. Good night. Thank you so much to everyone who came out. It was great to be on stage with a packed house. Now, if you couldn't be there to taste some of the products that were on offer, here's your chance. We're giving away a set of Brooklyn Deli, a Char's, and an Amsam sampler set. We'll pick one winner from our mailing list for each prize. So subscribe now. If you're already on the list, you're automatically entered into this and all of our giveaways. And if you've noticed, we've been doing more giveaways lately, so get on that list. You must sign up by August 31st to have a shot at this prize. Sign up now at sporkful.com newsletter. Please take a minute right now to connect with our show in your podcasting app. That way you can keep listening in the future. Find out about new episodes. We can hang out all the time. It's going to be great. Different apps have different features. It could be follow. It could be the plus sign or heart or favorite. Subscribe, whatever it is. Go to our show page in your podcasting app. Please do that thing. Thanks. 
Next week on the show, I chat with Alexander Smalls. When the Grammy-winning opera singer was turned down for a lead role at the Metropolitan Opera, he decided to open a restaurant and ended up creating a southern fine dining eatery in New York that was well ahead of its time. Since then, he's done so much more and now has an African food hall in Dubai. We don't just chat. Alexander whips me up his version of shrimp and grits. Oh my God, it was so good. Don't listen to this episode on Empty Stomach. Trust me, that's next week. And if you're looking for more Sporkful to listen to, check out last week's show where I attempt to travel through time to eat a piece of coconut cake that I should have eaten years ago. It's a pretty wild saga that takes me to some of the strangest places in L.A. Definitely check that one out. This show is produced by me, along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producer Andres O'Hara. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. Our engineer is Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Eric Eddings and Colin Anderson. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Christine from Brooklyn, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. <laughs> <laughs>